be an outline in your bulletin. There are printed messages at both exits you can track with uh, now or later. And those always have a lot more verses and things than I can uh, refer to during the message because of time. Um, If you'd let me preach for an hour and a half, we could uh, accommodate all those extra verses, but that doesn't happen. So those are in there. And all the messages are online and uh, for the past 21 years or so, so you can access either the printed or almost all the audio there. Uh, we're missing about seven audio tapes still, and uh, got to track those down. But um, anyway, John 2, I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some water out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And so should you and me. A little girl from a a poor section of a large city got sick on Christmas Day. She was taken to the hospital Laying there in her hospital bed, she heard Christmas carolers sing, and then someone gave the simple gospel message how Jesus had come to this earth and had come to redeem us from our sins. And that little girl responded to the message by trusting in Jesus as her Savior. And later she said to one of the nurses, I'm having such a good time here. I know I'll go home as soon as I'm well, but I'll take Jesus with me. Isn't it wonderful why he was born? He came to save us. Yes, the nurse said wearily, that's an old story. Oh, said the girl, do you know about him too? You didn't look like you did. Why? How did I look? She asked. Oh, like a lot of folks, sort of glum replied the girl. I thought, she said, if you really understood that he came to bring us to heaven, you'd be glad. Well, that story makes me wonder how many of us, by our demeanor, communicate to others that we're going to heaven, that we know the Savior, that our sins are forgiven, uh, that we, as Jeremiah cited, Know the God in whose presence is fullness of joy. 
and at whose right hand are pleasures forever, Psalm 16:11. Or how many have experienced the fact that we'll get to in John 10:10 10, 10, that Jesus came to bring life and that more abundantly? Or as he says in John 15:11 that he wants his joy to be in us and he wants our joy to be made full. Now, if you happen to be lacking this morning, or generally, in the fullness of joy department, and uh, most of us are, I confess, I'm not always in the fullness of joy uh, camp. Well, we might benefit by meditating on the story we read here about Jesus' first miracle. He turns about 150 gallons of water into wine at this wedding celebration in Cana of Galilee. Contrary to how a lot of people think about Jesus, he didn't say, ah, they've had enough, let them drink water. In other words, Jesus wasn't a killjoy. Sometimes I think we present him like that, like he came to just make you stop doing everything you enjoy doing and start doing everything you really hate doing. Uh, He was not that way. He wanted this young couple to enjoy their wedding celebration. He knew that the lack of, of wine in the middle of the festivities would forever mar that. And so he provided abundantly for them. And he wants to provide abundantly for every single one of us the fullness of the joy of salvation. Now, it's an interesting story. You don't know who the bride is or who the groom is. I mean, what kind of a wedding is that, right? You always know who the bride or the groom are. You don't go to a wedding. We don't know. It doesn't tell us. Uh, There is no mention of how the wedding party or any of the guests responded to the miracle if they even knew that it was a miracle. Maybe there wasn't even a glitch. They went back to refill their glasses and there was more than enough and they didn't know what had happened behind the scenes. In fact, John doesn't even tell us how the miracle was done. It was very low-key. You know, if this had been a lot of uh, fables, Jesus would have called everyone around and said, you over there, uh, drink some of that out of that uh, stone water pot, and he would have drank, it's water. And you over there, drink too. Yep, every one of them, water, 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 all down the line. Now, abracadabra, now drink. Wow, how did he do that? You know, and it would have been a big spectacular event and so on. But uh, the focus here is not on anything spectacular. It's very low-key. The focus is on Jesus and His glory, as John says in verse 11. But only for those who had eyes to see. And that's significant. It's only for His disciples. They saw His glory. And they believed in Him. Now, John in verse 11 calls this miracle a sign. A sign isn't to call attention to itself, but to point to something else. It's to tell you it's over there or that kind of thing. And here, a sign is to point to Jesus and what He came to do. Now, it's important to emphasize this was an actual historical event. If you had been there You could have tasted the water beforehand. You could have tasted the wine afterward. In other words, it really happened. This isn't a make-believe, made-up story uh, by John. 
But John wants you to see it's like a parable in that there's more to this story than just the facts. You have to think about it. What is the significance and the meaning behind it? Now, in some of the other miracles uh, that John will relate, the other signs as he calls them, he pretty well gives you a clue. John chapter 6, Jesus turns uh, or multiplies the loaves and the fishes and feeds the 5,000. And then in John 6.35, he very plainly says, I am the bread of life, in case you missed it, in the miracle. Uh, Then in John chapter 8, Jesus proclaims in verse 12, I am the light of the world. And in case you didn't understand it, in chapter 9, he heals a man who was born blind. In John chapter 11, Jesus tells Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he proves it by saying, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus, who had been in the grave four days, was raised to life. But here, there is no explanation uh, to tell us what is the significance, what is the deeper meaning of this miracle. Now, some well-meaning commentators read all sorts of things in here. They really almost allegorize the miracle. And so it was a real struggle to try to figure out, well, what is the significance of it? Uh, You don't want to read in what's not here. Um, I think that there are a couple of things, a couple of guidelines that help us uh, stay in bounds. One is the context, and then other is some clues within the miracle itself. In the previous context, in John chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, we get a clue. For of His fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. And so, there John is contrasting the inferiority of the law, the superiority of Jesus, plus the idea of fullness. Well, you get to this miracle, and uh, you got fullness. He makes six full water pots of wine, more than enough to supply the need. And uh, there's also a contrast here on the Jewish purification pots that are empty and the fullness of the joy that Jesus gives. So a contrast again between the old Jewish way and the new covenant blessings that come through Christ. And so he's giving an abundance of wine. And as I'll say in a moment, it was often a symbol of the messianic kingdom to come. So that's in the past context. In the context after this miracle, we will read of Jesus cleansing the temple. That'll be in our next study. uh, And proclaiming that his risen body is the new temple. And in chapter 3, we'll see Jesus teaching a uh, leader of the Jews about the new birth in order to bring Nicodemus uh, along. Uh, Nicodemus had all the rituals of Judaism down pat. He was a a Jew's Jew, so to speak, a leader of the Pharisees, but he lacked something. He lacked new life. And so, again, John is drawing a contrast between dead religion that cannot save and the new life that Jesus gives symbolized by this abundance of wine. Um, 
In chapter 4, we will read about a woman who goes to Jacob's well to draw water. And Jesus offers this sinful woman living water that will quench her thirst forever. And instead of worshiping at Gerizim or Jerusalem, Jesus says, I'm offering worship in spirit and in truth. And so again, just a contrast between the deadness of religion, hadn't helped that woman. She was on her, she had five husbands and was on her sixth uh, live-in as Jesus spoke to her. She wasn't finding success or happiness there, but it was in knowing Jesus that she would have this living water. Um, And so here in the story itself, we see these empty water pots, and John mentions they were used for the Jewish custom of purification, and then they are filled with this new wine that Jesus gives, and we have John's statement in verse 11 that this sign manifested Jesus' glory, and the result is the disciples believed in Him. One other key to interpreting this miracle is this, and that is we need to understand that in the Jewish culture, they viewed wine and weddings as symbols or times of joy and celebration and as symbolic of that new messianic age that Jesus would bring when there would be no lack, when there would be a wonderful uh, experience in his kingdom. Uh, The rabbis could say there is no rejoicing save with wine. And Leon Morris, who cites that, is quick to add, uh, that does not indicate drunkenness. He says, and he's correct, drunkenness in the Jewish community was strongly condemned. Many, many verses in the Old Testament Also, we have to understand their wine was diluted about one part wine to three parts water. So it was not nearly as strong as the wine or the uh, beer that we would drink drink today. But in the Old Testament, wine is often associated with joy and gladness. And I can't take you to all the verses, but let me just take you to two texts. Isaiah 25.6 promises this. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish, notice that word, lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow and refined aged wine. Or another prophet, Joel, in Joel 2:19 and 24, promises this, The Lord will answer and say to His people, Behold, I am going to send you grain, new wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, notice again, in full with them. There's that idea again of plenty, of fullness. And I will never again make you a reproach among the nations. The threshing floors will be full of grain, and the vats will overflow with new wine and oil. And there are several other passages as well in the prophets you could go to. So, all of that to say, we can sum up the significance then of this miracle as follows. Jesus' first miraculous sign should cause us to see His glory and the superiority of the joyous salvation that He brings to everyone so that we can believe in Him. Now, I'm going to look, just walk you through the text because it needs some explaining Look first at the situation in verses 1 and 2. 
then the sign itself in verses 3 to 10, and then the, the significance in verse 11. So here's the situation, verses 1 and 2. Jesus, his mother, and his disciples attend a wedding in Cana of Galilee. The third day means probably the third day after Jesus' encounter with Nathanael that we saw in chapter 1. Cana was about 8, 9, 10 miles, somewhat like that, from Nazareth. Um, Jesus grew up, as you know, in Nazareth. We're not told the social connection, but apparently Mary or uh, Jesus and his family knew this family. Joseph may have been dead by now. Uh, He's never... Um, referred to in a way that would for sure make make us know he was still living. Uh, interestingly, John never uses Mary's name. He always calls her the mother of Jesus. Uh, the disciples at this point would probably be the five men we met in chapter 1. John never tells us how the other seven became disciples. He first mentions the twelve, just kind of out of the blue, as if we know about them in verse chapter 6, verse 67. Now, to run out of wine at a wedding would have been a major social blunder. Um, And it would have been not only embarrassing, but it could have subjected the groom's family to legal action because he had failed to provide the proper wedding gift, which you just did not do in that culture. Um, And uh, it may mean the family was poor. They were trying to scrimp by. But again, you have to understand, this was a shame-based culture. All of the Middle Eastern cultures are that way. And so to lose face by running out of wine in a wedding would have been the talk of the town for uh, many years afterward. The family would have had a hard time living it down. Jewish weddings had three stages. The first stage was the betrothal stage. It usually took place more than a year before the actual wedding celebration. And uh, it could only be broken by divorce. So unlike our engagement period, uh, it was more serious. It took a legal separation to break off a betrothal. You'll remember that from the story of Mary and Joseph. When Joseph discovered that Mary was pregnant through the Holy Spirit, but he didn't know the Holy Spirit part first, uh, he just thought she had been unfaithful. And he sought to divorce her, to put her away is the way it's phrased, but that word means to divorce until, of course, the angel told him the truth. Uh, So that was the first phase. Uh, The second phase was the wedding procession where the groom and his friends would go to the home of the bride get her and her friends who were there in waiting, and they would take them back to the wedding uh, feast or celebration. And that's what we have here in John chapter 2. This thing could last as long as a week. I don't know how everybody got off work for a week to go and celebrate. Uh, It would have taken an enormous amount of uh, money to supply food and wine for all of the guests. But that's what's going on here. And needless to say, in a small village in uh, Israel at that time, this was a major social occasion. Uh, The second part of our story is the sign itself. And Jesus met the couple's needs by turning the water into wine. We read about that in verses 3 through 10. Um, Three 
three steps in this. There's the counsel of Mary to Jesus, then the command of Jesus to the servants, and then the comments of the head waiter. So first of all, in verses 3 through 5, there's the counsel of Mary, which I think we can interpret as saying, uh, do something, Jesus, to fix this situation. Uh, Mary might have had something to do with the um, catering of the food and drink, and maybe that's why she comes to Jesus. Uh, There are different opinions among commentators as to exactly what she is asking or implying when she says to Jesus, they have no wine. Some argue that because Jesus had not yet uh, performed a miracle, that she wasn't asking for a miracle. She was merely asking him to use his resourcefulness to come up with some solution. I find a problem with that view because how is he going to fix it? I mean, he wasn't rich. He couldn't run out to the corner uh, 7-Eleven and buy more wine for the uh, festivities. And so I would go a different direction with it. Um, It seems to me you have to keep in mind that Mary knew that the angel had appeared to her before she was pregnant with the Holy Spirit with Jesus and announced that she was going to become miraculously pregnant, that her son would be the son of the Most High, and that he would reign on the throne of his father David forever. She couldn't have forgotten that. She also knew that she had conceived him while still a virgin. She remembered the prophecies when they took the young baby Jesus to the uh, temple when he was uh, eight days old and the aged Simeon came up and, and blessed him and said, Now, Lord, your servant can depart in peace because I've seen your salvation, um, who will be a light to the Gentiles and so on. Anna had prayed over Jesus and all of that. Then it says specifically in Luke 2 that she treasured in her heart that incident when Jesus was 12 and they went up to the temple and uh, they started to return. Miss Jesus went back, found him there interacting with the scribes. And so Mary knew all of this. And so I think that um, when she says they have no wine, she is perhaps suggesting to Jesus that he do something to demonstrate the fact that he is the Messiah In other words, launch your ministry now, Jesus, Mama is telling him. Uh, That's, I think, behind this. Now, Jesus' reply strikes us as a bit abrupt and rude when he says in verse 4, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Now, you have to understand, woman in that culture as an address was not rude. Here, if you say woman, it seems kind of... Rude, And there it was not, because Jesus from the cross addressed Mary as woman as he hung there and said, Woman, behold your son, and entrusted her to John, the apostle. So it was a term of respect, but at the same time we have to say it was not the usual way a son would address his mother. So there's some distance there. Uh, The next phrase is literally a Hebrew idiom, and the Hebrew... Translation, or even the Greek, is what to me and to you? What to me and to you? And uh, in the Gospels, on several occasions, the demons actually address Jesus in that manner. Um, 
it serves to put some distance between the two parties. Again, um, it could be translated here. What do you and I have in common so far as the matter at hand is concerned? So I think we have to view it as a rebuke of Mary's suggestion that Jesus do something to show that he's Messiah. Um, I think Jesus is indicating to Mary, there is now a new relationship between us. Uh, I am now under my father's authority and uh, uh, she cannot presume upon him and she cannot dictate to him how he must act. She has to allow him now to minister in his own timing and in his own way. Uh, D.A. Carson in his commentary makes this observation regarding Mary. He says she could no longer view him as other mothers viewed their sons. She must no longer be allowed the prerogatives of motherhood. It is a remarkable fact that everywhere Mary appears during the course of Jesus' ministry, Jesus is at pains to establish distance between them. This is not callousness on Jesus' part. On the cross, he makes provision for her future. But she, like every other person, must come to him as the promised Messiah, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Now, just let me say in passing, that's a very different view than the Roman Catholic Church tries to establish with Mary as even being the one you go through to get on Jesus' good side. Um, that is not the biblical picture. Mary was a godly woman, but she rejoiced in God, her Savior, implying she was a sinner who needed salvation. So, she was not immaculately conceived. She was not sinless. Um, and as we'll see next week, she was not perpetually a virgin. She had other children. Jesus then explains his comment to his mother by adding, My hour has not yet come. You trace that through the Gospel of John and you realize that the hour that Jesus is talking about is the hour of his glorification on the cross. Uh, and what Jesus means is here that um, it's not time to reveal his public identity by performing a miracle in a way that would show him to the public to be Messiah. We'll see a similar kind of encounter with Jesus and his brothers in John chapter 7 where they say, go up to the feast and, you know, in other words, do something, prove it if you're Messiah. And Jesus says, I'm not going and then later he does go, but undercover more. Same thing here. He denies Mary's request, and then he fulfills it on, in his own terms in a more behind-the-scenes, discreet manner. Mary somehow must have taken some hope from Jesus' answer, um, and she says to the servants in verse 5, Whatever he says to you, do it. Spurgeon has a whole sermon on that verse, and it's a worthy verse of a sermon. Uh, it's good advice at all times, in all places. Whatever Jesus says to you, through the Word, not in your imagination, but through the Word of God, do it. Good advice. Then you have the commands of Jesus in verses 6, 7, and 8. Fill the water pots with water. Now, these six stone water pots were about 20, 30 gallons each. So you got 120 
to 180 gallons of water. And uh, they were for the Jewish ritual or custom of purification, John adds. The Jews really went overboard on purification. The Jewish Mishnah, which is one of their books of rules, has 126 chapters with 1,001 separate items of purification. In fact, there are two special tractates with just instructions on how you go about purifying your hands and your vessels that you use for cooking. And that has over 30 chapters. I mean, who could remember all of these regulations? Uh, That's, I guess, why they had the Pharisees. But um, the point is, Judaism had become a religion that was emphasizing the externals. And yet often, as Jesus pointed out to them, your hearts are far from me. So they had the outside part of it down. Uh, Sometimes their hearts were not right with God. John notes the servants filled the water pots to the brim. I think he adds that so that nobody could say, well, they added some wine. No, they were full of water right to the top. And uh, as I said, it's interesting. We're not told how Jesus did this. All we're told is they filled it to the brim. Jesus said, dip some out, take it to the head waiter. He tastes it. And somewhere between the water pot and the waiter, they became wine. And it was good stuff. It was good wine. And I say, well, was it real wine? You sure Jesus didn't make grape juice? Uh, that's a far-stretched argument. And I've read some who try to prove it. But the Greek word means wine. Verse 10 implies it was alcoholic wine. The head waiter isn't endorsing drunkenness. He's pointing out a custom that in that day, every host would serve the best stuff first when your palate was fresh and you could taste it and go good. After a while, after you drink a glass or two, your palate becomes dull. You can't taste it, so then they'd serve the cheaper wine later. Um, Also, I think we have to understand, the Bible uniformly condemns drunkenness. Start to cover, you know, cover to cover. There is no place it endorses or allows for drunkenness. But at the same time, you cannot prove total abstinence from the Bible. Uh, It's just not there. Now, having said that, there are a couple of reasons that it may be wise for you to pursue total abstinence. Number one is, look around in our society, and it's pretty obvious it is easy to get addicted to alcohol. Easier for some than others, apparently a genetic factor. But you start depending on the stuff. You come home from work, you're kind of spent. You say, man, a glass of beer, wine would really do me good, and you chug it down. Hey, another one would feel good too. You chug it down. Pretty soon, you know, you've devoured a six-pack. I read somewhere that two beers a night and you are medically an alcoholic. Just two a night. You're addicted to it. You need it. Without it, you're going to be jittery. You're not going to have the, the relaxation you need. So be very careful just from that end. You don't want to get hooked on the stuff. A second factor is this. We looked at it in Romans 14. If there is a brother in Christ who comes to Christ out of an alcoholic background and he's really fought and he's gotten off the stuff and he sees you chugging a beer or drinking a glass of wine and through that he is tempted to go back to it, he goes back and loses control, becomes an alcoholic, uh, 
you have caused your brother to stumble. And Paul said, I'd rather not drink wine than to do that. I just don't want to be the source of causing my brother to sin. Now, at this wedding, as I said, the wine was diluted. Jesus is not promoting drunkenness here. Um, But I do believe we have to say he made alcoholic wine for the wedding party. Um, The third thing to note, then, is the comment of the head waiter. He says, you've kept the best wine for now. Uh, We're not told that he knew where it came from. We're not told whether he or the bridegroom ever knew. But he says, this is good stuff. He knew that this was quality wine. And uh, there are several commentators who note, the world always gives its best things first, and it saves the worst for last. In other words, there's an immediate gratification when you sin, but then there are long-term consequences. On the other hand, following Christ can be hard in the, in the uh, immediate Taking up your cross isn't exactly a pleasant thing to do all the time, but he promises us joy and pleasure forever with him in heaven where there will be no pain or sorrow or tears or death. And uh, so Jesus gives the best things last. The third thing and final thing to note then is the significance, and that is that this miracle points us to Jesus' glory as the Christ, the Son of God, And he provides the abundant joy of salvation to his people, to those who believe in him. I think in all of the miracles, we have to keep in mind John's stated purpose. We looked at that in our first study from chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Uh, John said, therefore, many other signs, that's his word for miracles, many other signs Jesus performed in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. He goes on to say, you couldn't even write a book long enough to contain them all. But he says, these have been written for this purpose, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now John states in verse 11, that the result of this miracle was that his disciples, and I think we have to read the five men we met in chapter 1, believed in him. Now you're going to say, wait a minute, didn't they believe in him when they followed him? Answer, yes. They believe in him again. Now, we'll see them believing all the way through the Gospel of John. And for John, belief is not something you did back in summer camp when you were 10 years old and you trusted in Jesus as your Savior and, well, that's done. You know, let's move on with life. For John, belief is dynamic. It is ongoing. It is a daily thing. And it increases as you see more of who Jesus really is. And so the whole Gospel of John is about showing you who is Jesus. I have a a family member by marriage right now who's uh, a skeptic. And uh, this other family member, his wife, uh, contacted me recently and just told me about a discouraging conversation with him and said, what what do I say to him? And my answer was, you just got to bring him back to who Jesus is. Because if Jesus is not who he claimed to be, if he is not who we see he is 
by apostolic witness in the Gospels, then it's perfectly rational. Eat, drink, be merry. You're going to die tomorrow and it doesn't matter thereafter. Paul says that. He says, our whole witness rests on Jesus is risen from the dead. And if that isn't true, then forget being a Christian. Why do it? You're just going to get suffering. Just get the most pleasurable life you can. You're going to die and there's nothing. But the apostolic witness is pretty clear. And these men all laid their lives on the line to say, we know Jesus is who we saw Him to be. We saw these signs in the presence of many witnesses. And so they believed in Him. And as they saw more, they believed again, and they believed again, and they believed again. And that's, of course, why you should be reading your Bible cover to cover. Because the whole Bible tells us who Jesus is. Now, I've already um, commented on the main significance of the miracle, and that is that wine is a symbol of joy, and especially joy in the coming Messianic kingdom. And the six stone water pots for the Jewish custom of purification just point to the fact that ritualistic religion doesn't cut it. Let me say that again. Ritualistic religion doesn't cut it. And Jesus did away with that. He filled these stone water pots with water, turned the water into wine to show us that in Him there is the abundant joy of a relationship with the living Savior. And you see, it's easy to get into ritualism, even here in a church like ours, where we aren't doing the, the holy water and the, all the rituals every week, but we have our rituals. You come to church, you go through it, you go home. It's easy to get into that. No, Christianity is a relationship with the living Lord. And He gives this transforming joy of salvation to all who believe in Him. Leon Morris puts it this way. He says, This particular miracle signifies that there is a transforming power associated with Jesus. He changes the water of Judaism into the wine of Christianity. The water of Christlessness into the wine of the richness and the fullness of eternal life in Christ, and the water of the law into the wine of the gospel. A further significance of this miracle is that John says Jesus manifested, notice, His glory. His glory. He doesn't say Jesus manifested the Father's glory. Now, that's true. But John says Jesus manifested his glory. And that shows that He is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. R.C. Trench, um, in his book, The Notes on the Miracles of Our Lord, says, Of none less or lower than the Son could it be affirmed that He manifested forth His glory. Every lesser or lower would have manifested forth the glory of God. In Isaiah, we saw in chapter 1 that John the Baptist says that he's a voice calling in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord. Well, that comes from Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. And then you know what you read two verses later in verse 5? Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. 
Well, John knew that text very well. And he is showing us here, John the Baptist prepared the way. The Lord has come, as we'll see next week, into His temple. And now the glory begins to be revealed. And John saw His glory. And so, John the Apostle is saying here, the glory of Jesus that we began to see in this first miracle is none other than the glory of the Lord. Jesus is the eternal Lord God. Also, this miracle reveals Jesus as the Creator. Remember in chapter 1, verse 3, we saw all things came into being through Him, through Christ, the Word. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And so just as He uh, created all things, here He can turn water into wine. And here's the good news. Just as He changed water into wine, He can change the chief of sinners into the greatest of saints. And He can transform your heart and your soul when you come to Him in faith and believe in Him. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. And so he takes the deadness of religious externalism, ritualism, and changes it into the joy of a relationship with him, the living Savior. This miracle also, as I've indicated, um, shows us the abundance of the provision that Christ makes for his own who believe in him for our needs. Here we are, the wine has run out. And there was no store on the corner you could go down and buy another few bottles to finish off the wedding. And maybe they didn't have the money anyway. So the, the point is, they were destitute. They were needy. There was nothing they could do. And you know, it's at times when you come to the end of yourself that the Lord delights to show you the abundance of His fullness. Have you been there? You just run out of gas. I mean, you've tried everything. You did this, you did that. Nothing works. And that's when the Lord comes in. We'll see in chapter 6. 5,000 men plus women and children, and they're hungry. And Jesus, to test the disciples, says, where are we going to get bread to feed all these? Well, we don't have any. I mean, five loaves, two fish. What is that? Well, when you're empty... That's when the Lord can move in and work. The Apostle Paul had the same experience, remember? He cried out three times, God, would you take this thorn in my flesh? And God said, my strength is perfected in your weakness, Paul. And Paul said, then I'll glory in my weakness because his strength is manifest in me. In the book of Revelation, you got a church that's lukewarm. And you know what they thought? They thought, we're rich, and we have need of nothing. And they didn't experience anything from the Lord. And you know what the Lord told them? You need to see that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And then you know what the next part is? Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. It's not an evangelistic verse in the context. It's a verse to the church to a church that was self-sufficient. To say, church, you're not self-sufficient, but I'm here at the door and I'm knocking and if you'll open the door, I'll come in and I'll have dinner with you. And you know the good part? He brings the food. 
He brings all the food. All you got to do is open the door and recognize your need and say, Oh God, I'm empty. And He's our fullness. Now, this morning, chances are there are some of you here and you're kind of like these empty water pots. Maybe you've dabbled in religion, but it hasn't met your need because you've never believed in Jesus. You've never come to Him as a sinner and said, Oh God, I can't save myself. All the religion in the world can't atone for my sin. But I understand you died on the cross to pay the penalty I deserve. God, save me or I perish. So some of you need to come and believe in Him for the first time as your Savior and Lord. And then probably most of us, we've believed in Christ as Savior, but we're kind of running on maybe half full or maybe half empty or maybe even empty. The fullness of joy of salvation just isn't bubbling over in our lives every day, if you're honest. Well, the answer is here again. We need to see more of His glory. We need to see that He is the Lord who doesn't just give us a trickle. He provides an abundance for those who will see His glory and believe in Him again and again. John Stott, the late British pastor, told a story about a Salvation Army drummer in England. And uh, he was beating his drum so hard that the band leader had to tell him to tone it down. And he had a Cockney accent, which I can't imitate very well. But his, his reply was, God bless you, sir. Since I've been converted, I'm so happy I could bust the blooming drum. And that's kind of the attitude that I think we all ought to have as uh, those who have tasted the new wine that Jesus gives. It ought to just make us so happy we could just bust the blooming drum. And so Jesus came to change the water of dead religion into the joyous, new, abundant wine that we experience when we believe in Him. Dear Father, we come before You acknowledging our emptiness. Every day, Lord, if You should abandon us, we would be destitute, empty, without. But Father, thank You that Jesus offers fullness of joy and pleasures forever in Your presence. Help us not to rest with ho-hum, grit it out, endure, hang on by your fingernails kind of Christianity. But Lord, fill us with joy. We need your joy. And Father, if any are here who don't know the joy of having their sins forgiven, the joy of knowing that should this be their last day on planet Earth, it is well with their soul because... Jesus has forgiven them. I pray you would open the eyes of their understanding and show them the sufficiency of Christ as a Savior of sinners, that they would flee to the cross before they even leave this room, that their trust would be in Jesus as their Savior and Lord. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.